dear Naya. If you hate me, you should. You should hate me because I'm the stupidest bitch in the world for giving you and your brother away. I tried so hard to keep you both. But don't you worry about nothing, baby. God got you and Teddy. I love you so much. I tried so hard to keep y'all, but, but Mama couldn't. You looked so beautiful before I took you to that church in a snowsuit that I stole from Sears. I only wanted a better life other than this homeless shelter and the Peter Pan bus station for baths. I'm so ashamed. I hope someone kills me for what I've done. I hope God kills me for what I've done. Maybe I'll help him. You know I tried before, lots of befores. I'm so sorry I left your brother in the hospital, but he's gonna be safe there. I know someone's gonna get him and he's gonna be safe. Damn. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That was a clip from a short YouTube documentary titled A Letter to Naya. It's a film about Sharon Wise and her remarkable story of overcoming addiction and homelessness working through uh, various mental health challenges, reuniting with her children, and becoming an advocate and an inspiration in the process. I sat down with Sharon to talk about her life's work and about the process of healing trauma. I'm Sergio Gregorio, and this is The Surge Experience. So Sharon, thank you so much for joining us mm-hmm. um, today and, and doing this podcast. You know, when I met you, it's probably a couple of months ago um, at, at an event um, with the uh, DC police, mm-hmm. you were walking around um, with this puppet. <laughs> and I thought that was... Neither. That's neither. Right, right. And I thought that was interesting. And I, and I thought to myself, who is this woman and what... <laughs> Why is she walking around with a puppet? A pink puppet. A pink puppet at that. Can you can you tell me a little bit about about that? Well, the pink puppet actually it's a pink flamingo, and his its name is Neither. And I started using Neither because I was working with children who had been burned and hurt or harmed by a family member or caregiver. And what was happening is that the children would not deliver the gold medal of who did it. And so they brought me in, would use my creativity to try to talk with the children and interview them on what happened to your arm or how did you get burned. And I came in and I brought Neither with me and Neither had a Band-Aid on one of his legs. And of course the children as young as three years old would ask, what happened to your puppet? Oh, someone hurt, hurt Neither, but I don't know who did it. And the child would blurt out, like my mommy did me, or like my uncle or someone. And I realized that using the puppets was a good way to get to, the, to what happened. Not what's wrong, but what, what, what happened. And so I started using the puppet. I have three of them. I have a camel whose name is Janai Zekwa. Uh, I'm so beautiful, I don't have a name. And neither, and then I have a pumpkin. And pumpkin? Punk, yeah, pumpkin is orange, and pumpkin kind of looks like the grouch. But pumpkin can twerk and split his legs at the same time, <laughs> and the old people love him <laughs> to life. And so when I'm doing certain things based on my audience, then I bring a particular uh, puppet with me to help me um, soothe and engage and love and get to the point. Because it's things that people tell those puppets they will never tell me. I definitely want to circle back and get back to uh, the work that you do that's informed in large part by your your background and your life story. Um, in preparation for this interview, I looked at a YouTube video that you told me that I mm-hmm. should take a look at called A Letter to Naya. Yes. And Naya is your daughter. Yes. Correct? Yes. The video talks about your background, you know, being diagnosed with a mental illness at a young age 
being hospitalized for the first time at age nine, being addicted to drugs during your youth, mm-hmm. um, I think multiple suicide attempts. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of give our listeners an insight into who you are um, before going back to talk about the work that you do. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit more about your story? Yes, my story is not like a lot of people who I work with, who I may go out to dinner with and may go to the movies with. And I realized that a lot of those people that I work with, go to dinner with, go to the movies with, they had trauma too, because I can pick it up. I could see it from a mile away. And what I realized in my own life, as tumultuous as it was, that a lot of things did not happen to me, they primarily happened for me. In that, I mean that at five years old, I was able to stand on the bar with my sailor coat and hat on and matching patent leather shoes and order a JB and 7-Up. I grew up in a home where that was okay for ch- children to drink, to be touched inappropriately once the grown-ups got drunk, and if you told, no one would believe you. So I started to create this um, a world for myself that was um, inclusive of the art and taking things I found in the environment as healing tools, not realizing that that's what they were, nor did I give them that name. So as I grew up from five year old, my mother, um, after being severely beaten by my stepfather, moved us to Chicago. And that's where things continued. Where did you grow up? I was born in Indianapolis, Indianapolis. Indiana. And my mother moved us from Indianapolis, Indiana, to Chicago, Illinois. And the abuse continued because my mother had her own trauma and my grandmother had her own trauma. So now we're talking about intergenerational, generational, historical, that led down to me and my mom having five girls by the time she was 25 with five men. She didn't know how to love us because my grandmother didn't know how to love her. And it was passed on to us. So with that, my mother having her own self-healing tools or adaptive tools, she chose alcohol. And she would drink with guys, and she'd get drunk and pass out. And that left me and my sisters vulnerable to be abused and touched inappropriately by family members as well as strangers. But I always would run to my art or I would run to some kind of pretend world to kind of escape that. And I know now it was just... um, Um, healing tools, self-care, adaptive tools. I mean, we have a lot of psychological names for them now, but I didn't know what they were. In the meantime, my life began to take a turn for the worse, and then I became old enough to make some of those wrong decisions that my mom made. So I got out there, and I'm 17. I'm pregnant with my second child. By the time I'm 19, I have two children. By the time I'm 20, they're both in foster care because I was living on the streets. I'm living under this bridge. I'm living in shelters. I'm living wherever I can, squatting in abandoned buildings, staying in um, Peter Pan bus station, Greyhound bus stations with my children, just trying to take care of them while trying to take care of myself. And then I, I would never forget the night that things just got just really, really bad. And I knew that if I didn't do something with the children, I was gonna end up just kind of leaving them at the bus stop, you know, and I didn't want that. But I knew that I had already exhausted um, the shelters and stuff because I would get high and do drugs inside the shelter and bring things inside of there and I would get put out. The children were the um, collateral damage of me getting put out because now they don't have anywhere to stay in there two-year-old and six-week-old, you know, and I remember just, you know, feeling like this is it. I, I can't do this anymore. I don't mind killing myself or being killed on the street, beaten up from running off with people's packages and stuff, but I don't want this to happen to my children. So I took my son to an emergency room, and I surrendered him there. And then my daughter, the next day, this church that I used to go and get food and clothing and get a shower at, I took her there and left her. How old were you when you had your your children? My son, I was 16. I turned 17 nine days after he was born. And then by the time I was 19, I had had N- Naya, because uh, Mercedes is a little more than two years older than her. So she was six weeks old when I surrendered her. And so you had, um, or you have uh, several siblings. Yeah. Did you say there were five of you? It's five girls. Five yeah. girls. And where do you fall? In, I'm the in fourth the, child. You're the fourth. Yes. And so what was it like 
in the household? I mean, give me a sense of what the day-to-day was like as a young person. Because for those of us who didn't experience kind of what you experienced, I mean, what does that look like? You said there was drinking. You thought that a lot of the abuse, all of that was normal. What Was there any routine? Was there any structure? Did you have any sense, any sense that anything that you were experiencing that you were experiencing was wrong at an early age? Well, that's funny you asked that question because when you grow up in it, when you come out of the womb and here you are a newborn and you come home to the sounds of the music playing and people in your house and drinking and the fighting, then you grow up in this adaptive. You know what I'm saying? You're talking about coming from out of the womb into this environment. So when you, at, when you say, was that normal? I can't really answer that question. It was my normal. Right. My mother had another child 10 months and 19 days after I was born. So I wasn't even walking and she got another baby in her lap. So therefore I'm trying to get in her lap. I'm not walking, I'm 10 months old and I'm being pushed away. So what that taught me was if someone pushes you away that lo- that's supposed to love you, that that's fine. Because you're 10 months old, you don't, it doesn't register that that's abnormal, that someone, but how it came out in my adulthood is I would intentionally seek out people who were emotionally unavailable because that was normal. And I think that that's what I want the listening audience to understand that when a person has trauma early enough in their life and it goes unaddressed, for me, it happened in vitro. I was the product of a married man and a relationship my mother was having. So when I was conceived and she found out she was pregnant, she didn't want me. So therefore, you're being nurtured by someone in vitro who doesn't want you. So that gives you things the same way if you are wanted and your mom and dad is rubbing the belly and they're playing, you know, Mozart and Beethoven, you know, and you are loved before you even enter the world versus having a traumatic birth with the woman screaming, I don't want her, I don't want her, I don't want her. So this is what happens. And I think the end result is what happened to me. And I'm very grateful that the story wasn't over after I surrendered my children in and out of jail, mental health hospitals, trying to kill myself, putting guns in my mouth, cutting myself. And for a long time, I would not wear um, you all can't see me listening to the audience, but I have on like a little strappy dress. It's appropriate, but it's strappy. And um, I wouldn't wear things like this because I have burn marks where I would put cigarette butts out on myself and I'd cut myself. I'd do to myself what was done to me. And that just, that was normal. It was nothing abnormal about that. And having um, three sisters older than me and one younger than me, my sister that's younger than me, it was her father who we grew up in a house with. This was the best father a child could have. This guy was one of the biggest drug dealers and bootleg runners in Indiana at the time. So we grew up in a beautiful home, had a brand new car every year. Um, There wasn't a toy that came out we didn't have. Wow. I was introduced to gourmet food very early in my life because of what type of work he did. So people was always bringing him stuff. So I, you know, Havati cheese and gourmet olives and very um, unique chocolates from all over the world. I was introduced to things like that. Was he um, a chef full time or something? He was a drug dealer and he ran alcohol. So therefore, back in the 60s, sometimes people couldn't pay with money or they would rip off some some train and they'd bring all the drug dealers the the spoils you know fur coats and matching jackets with hats and stuff so we had a very very um physical um beautiful home but he would beat my mother for nothing so do you think that your life looked normal from the outside because i wonder given everything that you were experiencing as a child that you thought was normal um in my mind i feel like you know, some of what you experienced must have looked abnormal to the people on the outside. So what was your school life like? Did did you feel once you started meeting other children, hey, I fit in here, I'm a little different. Did you experience any of that? Well, once again, I go back to a statement that I made about when it comes to normal. If you come in the world and that's your normal, then I would say, when I would go to school, of course, I'd have a normal day, but I was an artist child, so I would, 
make, I would paint, um, I'm, I do surrealism, so I would paint what I was feeling tied to the art, which goes back, or will, what, what will eventually come up in our later conversation about my art, artistic abilities. I was a child prodigy, so I could draw amazing things. And my teachers would always wonder, Sharon, why is your tree, instead of having apples, it's got bloody eyes? Well, in my three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old mind, someone's standing over you getting ready to assault you in your home, and their eyes are bloody, the amygdala, the cortex, the hippocampus, the things that in your brain will try to work it out because the brain doesn't, isn't equipped to remember pain. It wants to try to work it out and figure and make some kind of normalcy out of whatever you're seeing as a child. So when I would go to school, I was very artistic. I remember I probably was three or four years old and I was the black butterfly and the teacher had made my costume and I came out of this cocoon and I had butterflies all in my hair and I got a chance to run around and people was clapping and clapping and clapping and I was very attracted to that because I felt that I'm good for something and that if I can just put a costume on or a mask on, I'll get the claps. Because remember, my childhood mind was not cognitive enough to understand, look, you're being assaulted at home, and now you got to come to school and work this out. You know, that's not how a four-year-old mind, it was fun. And that's what I meant by intentionally going out and seeking people emotionally and uh, unavailable. And if you see some of my old pictures, I had my hair purple, my hair was orange, I've had blonde, and I mean, I got a big ass afro now and it's graying in the front, but I would, I, my whole life until I was 29 or 30 was just a big costume um, play and, and movie, you know, and um, as far as my older sisters are concerned, they knew who their father was. They could be around their fathers. So their fathers would come and get them and take them somewhere, but by me being the result of an affair, my father couldn't come and get me and take me with his family. So I was always left while my older sister's fathers took them, my younger sister's father took her, and then I'm staying there with my mom, who was very resentful that I, one, look exactly like him, and two, he couldn't involve me in his life because he was married and he had, he had other children, you know. So when I was about nine years old, he was murdered, and my youngest sister father called my mother and told her, look, Sharon's father got killed last night, and since you didn't let her know him in his life, let her know him in his death, and she wouldn't. And my aunt told me that story after I'd gotten grown and everything. And I went to my mother and I asked her, Mom, who is my father? How come I don't get to go for summer or Christmas or something, you know, after she had moved us from Indianapolis to Chicago and get away from me, don't ask me no question and she'd get very angry at me. And me, that's how me and my mother's relationship was till she died about right at 10 years ago. It was very tumultuous because her whole thing was, I don't have to tell you about your father. And I wanted to know about my father. Okay, going back to this story about the video, A Letter to Naya, and you kind of touched on this, um, you definitely experienced significant guilt over giving up your children. And I guess that kind of informed a lot of, um, I don't know, the work that you do today, at least having to work through that issue. Can you tell me about that and how you've overcome that guilt and how that's the beginning of... Um, this sort of this, I don't want to say this new Sharon, but this evolved Sharon. This new Sharon, this new yeah, Sharon. that's fine. Okay. Well, first I want to say to the listening audience that guilt has no place in a person's life when they had nothing to do with their conception or the salt in the mother's tears when she's screaming, I don't want her. None of that was my fault, you know what I'm saying? And I say in the, in the film Letter to Naya, unequivocally, the only thing that was my fault was surrendering my children. And I take full responsibility for that. But I worked that out in therapy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I got clean and the drugs and alcohol and cutting and burning myself and being raped and putting myself in positions where I would be harmed. All of that was my, what I call me making penance for the things that I had done when I hadn't done nothing but be born. And I realized that the, my, my parents was just a vehicle 
that God needed to use to get me on this earth. And then everything else was about me and him. It was about him putting me in position to be a service to others. Not everybody could be rich or famous, but everybody could be a service. And how you get to your service work and your gifts, and God will make room for your gifts, is all through your experiences. But if you lay in bed feeling guilty about those things that led you to your greatness, then you are really going to die, and all of your gifts are going to stand around your grave saying, hey, everybody, let's jump in with her. Wow. And I refuse to let that be my narrative. So I went and I told the truth on what what happened so I can get to the it didn't happen to me, it happened for me plateau and changed my trajectory, you see. And so once I got my son back, my son was nine years old, and um, I got out of jail for the last time. I just did 18 months. And... Um, it was the first time that I ever been locked up, in the, and I think the difference was that. What had you been locked up for? Drugs, shoplifting, uh, fighting. The, the security tried to get the stuff that I was stealing back, and I beat them till they bled, and they locked me smooth up. Wow. And that particular time when I got locked up, I stayed a portion, portion of time in the local county jail, but once I was sentenced, they sent me to Seattle, Washington, to King County to do my time to a women's facility up there. And I think they were trying out some different, if they can do their time where they don't live, maybe it won't be so many people bringing them drugs in their neighborhood kind of thing. How much time did you serve? 18 months. And was time. it only one jail uh, oh, sentence I or multiple? Oh, I wish it was. Yeah, to- seven years total of my life. You know, either in wow. some kind of juvenile facility or forced into a mental health facility because I kirked out on some dip or something. You know, I was fighting in the streets from doing some bad heroin or falling out or something like that, and I would be what we call in D.C. FD-12, which is forcibly forced uh, into an institution. I don't know the number there, what the code is, but I know here it's FD-12, so I'm just going to use that. FD-12 probably about 20 times. Tenley Park, Jackson Park Hospital, Providence, you name it, I have been on their psych ward and then taken to jail because I hit an officer or I did something and blacked out, don't remember doing it, but I would wake up and my shoulder would be broke or my nose would be broke or my finger would be broke or something because I beat someone up and then they beat me up. You see what I'm saying? So I think that all of that was also things that I had to come clean about because I wanted early on when I got clean, which we're talking 32 years now, but when I got clean, I was still a victim, you know. This my mother didn't want me, and I shot dope, and my father know my dad, and so I shot some dope. Or I, you know, pour me, pour me, pour me some dope, pour me some liquor, you know what I'm saying, and things like that. But once I got um, this, this the jail that I was in in King County, that was the first time somebody asked me what what happened versus what's wrong. What's wrong with you? You gave your kids away. Mm. You, you, you shoot dope in your neck, girl. What's wrong with you? Somebody said, what happened, baby? What happened? I'm sitting up here watching you in the craft class. You making ceramic. Girl, you can sell that ceramic. Right. Other inmates will buy that from you. You making them beautiful Mother's Day cards. Girl, we got a little program in here for, for people that's, you know, doing time here. We set you up a little booth. You make your stuff. And every other Thursday, you can sell your stuff to the other inmates. And that's what the security did for me. And that told me you're not That useless. was security. That that did that for yeah, you. because wow. you know you had to get permission to go to like the church and all this kind of stuff, and um, she gave me a newfound hope, and I realized that my art wasn't ugly, that my art wasn't strange, you know, that my jewelry and stuff that I would do wasn't. You just have uh, you have your own um, way of doing things, and uh, and that's born out of what you're feeling inside. So of course. Your, your images might be a bit distorted or the jewelry is very, it looks like a wearable art. You know, it looks like a sculpture that you could wear and things like that, you know what I'm saying? And all of that was born out of me needing something for myself. And there was a problem. I couldn't find those type of items, so I had to create a solution for myself. And in that solution, the guilt just started going away. The shame started falling off before you know it. Um, any kind of negative um, images I had of myself was be gone. You know, I didn't feel those things anymore. And the more I didn't feel them, the more I was able to scale my creativeness. And when things would happen, I would just pivot. I would just pivot. You know, I would just pivot. You know, I would just pivot. And I would 
okay, now I got the puppets, and okay, now this emotion is coming up. Okay, now I got the hand puppets and not the marionettes. Okay, now this emotion is coming up. Now I'm gonna frame with the borders, and I'm gonna not use borders. I'm gonna use floating frames on this. You know, and it just it it, it always lead back to my creativity. Not shooting dope, not cutting myself. Those aren't options anymore. Right, because you know you talked earlier about gifts and being able to access those gifts. I imagine anyone who is abusing substances that gets in the way of you accessing what God has given you to serve humanity. Essentially, it blurs everything. And yeah, you but, never but really... sometimes drug use, like I say in my in my film, I say is drug abuse self-destructive, or is it the best attempt at self-healing that the person can have? So we have to be very careful when we are interacting with people who may, or like some of the people you might see in front of the liquor store asking for a dollar or a nickel, and I'm talking about they're dirty, they land on the ground, they in the trash can, that was me, you know what I'm saying? I did all of that. But I, some of them never get back, and we call that some will die so others can live. You know, so some people whose um, trauma is just so significant that I wasn't always addicted to drugs. I used to be able to sit at the bar with the drug dealers with my silk dress on and all my diamonds with my name on them and stuff like that, and I could use and bump some coke on the bar. I became addicted. I wasn't addicted when I started because the more I tried to use the drugs and the alcohol and the self-harm as a means of healing, then I got the results that rightly so. You see what I'm saying? But when I started to flip the script and I started using um, my artistic abilities and writing and things like that, then those became my healing tools. It was just really a shift or a pivot in, in what I used to, for self-healing. Now, I can hear my listeners asking me, I can hear them, what is your relationship like today with your children? What, what is that like today? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I got my son back in my life when he was nine years old. So when I got out of jail that time, the last time they moved me, the prison system moved me here to D.C. because they felt that if I had an environmental change, why, when they moved me up to Seattle, maybe once I came home, having an environmental change would also help. So they moved me up here. I didn't know anyone but two people, my probation officer and then one other person. And um, my life began to change. They moved me into a shelter. I started getting mental health counseling. I started going to NAAA meetings, things like that. But my son, Mercedes, he was the one that really shifted my paradigm to heights that I could have never achieved on my own. When he was 10 years old, I had finally found us a, found a job, I had found an apartment, and things like that over in Mayfair Mansion. I'll never forget my first apartment in my name, light bill in my name. I had never had any of that. And he started helping this guy um, on a Salvation Army canteen, and he got me involved in it. Well, a reporter saw him on a canteen doing his homework one night and wanted to do a story about him and asked him, little boy, what are you doing on the canteen feeding people and doing your homework? In between, he said, me and my mother are homeless. We moved here from Chicago, and my mother was, I just told all my business, just threw me under the bus. My mother was on drugs, you know, and right. just got out of jail, and now all this, you know, children. Don't they just do say that. anything, They right. will tell Whatever's on Jesus, on their mind. okay? Right. They will tell it. And the, and the reporter asked, um, well, here, give your mother my card. I'd love to interview you all. And it was, so we got, I got in contact with, I didn't believe him at first, because I just didn't. We are talking 92, you know what I'm saying, 93. And I gave her a call. I'll never forget her name was Margaret Camp. And uh, she did a story about us. She rode with us one night, and that got us invited to the White House to meet the old George Bush, the senior. That's uh, George Senior, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And from that, um, we ended up being on World News Tonight, America Tonight. We've been on all the talk shows, the last one being the Mari Povich show. You're kidding me. Sharing our story about the from the – from the park bench to Park Avenue kind of thing. This and must have been before Maury went, you know, south. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a, before, it was yeah. a pretty serious He was show doing before. very good shows yeah, at the that. time. And, um, and that kind of took us to another level. And that is how I think that my son really helped me heal a lot of that because my son forgave me. My son, his thing was, Mom, I don't know. I remember some things that happened. But at this time, at 10 years old, he didn't know he had a sister. 
And I remember he woke up one night and he was screaming, Mommy, Mommy, the baby's chasing me. The baby is chasing me. And I'm like, Mercedes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I went in there and I'm hugging him, comforting him. He's like, Mommy, Mommy, I keep having this dream about this baby chasing me. And in my soul, I knew it might was time for me to tell him he had a sister because he was in foster care up until he was four. I surrendered her at, two, at, at six month, weeks old. They were both in foster care in two different places. He never knew he had a sister. By the time he grew up at nine and I got him back in my life, I never said, well, you know your sister's still in foster care. I just felt that I can go on with my life and she had been legally adopted by this time and I didn't never have to talk about it or have any kind of conversation about it. And when he had that dream and he woke up like that, in my mind I'm thinking, I don't want my son to be traumatized by whatever these dreams are. And I remember right before I got locked up, he had drugged me in the house. And we talking about a two-year-old. Come on, mommy. And I remember him trying to get me up so I can get the baby in the house. Cause I just, I feel where coming across the threshold I'd fallen. And he's trying to get me up and he couldn't. And I'm looking up at him and I'm hiding cool to brown. And the baby is on a receiving blanket. And his two-year-old mind had to work that out. Like, like my five-year-old mind had to do. And I remember seeing him with his little two-year-old hands roll her on the receiving blanket so that he could pull her and get her in the house. And in his mind, when he remembered it at nine and a half, it might have looked like she was chasing him. But in fact, his mind was working out. He was pulling her. He had her trying to pull her. And I had to come clean and tell him, baby, the baby wasn't chasing you. You was trying to... <laughs> I said you was pulling her in the house. Mm. And he said, I was pulling who in the house? I said, your sister. He said, I got a sister? And I said, yeah. He said, well, where is she? And I said, well, she was legally adopted. And um, and he was like, well, well, go get her, you know. And he, I mean, he's nine. He told you, I could just pick the phone up and go get her. Right. And he told me from that day on, and it was, um, I think, like I said, the Maury Povey show was the last show we did. We did Sally Jess, we did Geraldo. And um, he said, I'm going to find her. I'm going to find my sister, you know. And when we were the last, when we did Maury's show, I asked the producer if he could um, – could talk to Mari at the end and they was like yeah 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 we can work that out he's a kid with me and so um Mari said well, do you have so you know they staged it you know and asked him you know do you have any other questions for me he said could I talk to my sister and Mari said yeah look in that camera right there and you talk to your sister and he said Naya I'm gonna find you I don't know where you are but I'm gonna find you you know like that and he had the whole audience just bawling and everything. I was bawling and all right. this kind of crazy. Oh, Lord, you know. And I knew then that I had an advocate, that I didn't have a son that was bitter. I didn't have a son that was broken and was going to become a drug dealer or a pimp. I had a son that was an advocate and that he was going to advocate for us. And we did that until he was about 12, you know, as far as the televisions and doing interviews. He ended up... Um, winning an award at his school. They named a day after him at his school. They named a library after him at Roper. You know, um, by the time he ended up in middle school, he was winning all kinds of awards for community service and stuff. And he ended up winning the Beat the Odds Scholarship in 97. And Maya Angelou was the, he introduced him and then we sat at her table. She continued to write him and send him money until he graduated from college, he left college and went into the military. And when he um, got out of the military, he started getting very serious about trying to find her. We had been trying, but when in Illinois, two things happen when you adopted. One, you must be told you adopted. And two, it's automatically a sealed adoption. So the child can't even um, start looking, or we couldn't look for her until she was 18. And once she turned 18, we tried to find her and we were not successful. And then 10 years ago, 
after he started um, Just Wag TV, which we have a, a television video studio down in Atlanta, he had a more of a social uh, visibility and started reaching out to people and networks he was building through his um, time in the military and college. And uh, he was going to find her, and he did eventually on MySpace. On MySpace. You remember MySpace? I remember MySpace. And by this time, we had had 10 naives approach us and contact us saying, I'm her, I was adopted, this and that, and the other, but the year didn't, didn't match. Didn't match. And it, they weren't in Chicago when they were surrendered, things like that. Like I said, you must be told. And when we found the, the Naya, I had just got on Facebook. I still didn't understand how Facebook worked mm -hmm. or anything. And I remember she had sent him a picture, and he sent it to me, but I didn't understand Messenger, Inbox, stuff like that at the time. And I went to, I saw something like beeping and I was like, well, what is this? I clicked on it and this picture popped up and in the, in the caption it said, mom, you was something else. Got your hair all blonde to the side and got it all fried and dyed with your little finger waves going on and your bamboo earrings. You right. look something else. And I'm looking at the picture. I said, that's not me. That's when I knew this is the right Naya. This is the right Naya. And I contacted him that evening and I told him, I said, I think you found your sister. He was like, Ma, she, I thought that was you. I said, no, that's that's her picture. I said, ask her for some more pictures because she wouldn't talk to me. She would just talk to him. Mm. And um, he was like, she was like, I don't want to meet her. I don't want to meet her and this and any other. But she would talk to him. So he convinced her in 2010. I mean, two, let me see, it's been 10 years. So it's 2011. Um, no, it was 2010. He convinced her to meet us. And so we flew her up here, and um, you can go on, once, once again, YouTube, and type in when Sharon met Naya, and you'll see the, the clips of when we met her at the, at the Dulles Airport. And he's doing the, the little video, and he said, here it go, after almost 27 years, wow. here comes the meeting, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And all these different people is getting off the airplane, and I saw pictures of her, but I never saw her in person at, uh, as an adult. But I knew when she walked off that that was her because she walked just like her father, you know, and her hair it was just like his. He had very long hair. And we, she came over to us and she waved at me. She would not touch me. She would not touch me. And he kept saying, hug your mother. You know, this is almost 27 years, hug your mother. She said, I hug her when I get ready to. Right. You know what I'm saying? He said, well... You know, I mean, most kids, you know, didn't know who their mom or dad was. They was adopted. They run into their parents' arms. You know, you you standing over there, you know, at least hold her hand. And she was like, I don't know. And that had been her attitude all the way through our relationship until she left us again. So how long was that period? Like three years. Three years. Mm -hmm. She stayed in our life, and it was very tumultuous because she kept, you know, borrowing money from me I bought her a car you know I must have spent 15 or 20 thousand dollars in 20 years just trying to not buy her love because I had worked that out in therapy but just try to let her know look we are a good family we have a business we have things going on if you need something you know you had two children I had two grandsons I didn't have any grandchildren before then and I got the chance to meet my grandsons you know what I'm saying and about probably five or six years ago seven years ago maybe she just made a decision look I don't want to be in y'all life I want to just hang out with my adopted family and you guys go on about your business and my whole thing was that's fine for you but I got now four grandchildren and they and they didn't do anything <laughs> you know they didn't do anything to cause whatever your beef is with me that's cool you ain't never got to speak to me in my in your life but I don't think you should withhold my grandchildren or, or, or take away their opportunity to have a, a grandmother like me in their life. And from that time, my son ended up having a child, Desmond. He's 16 now, getting ready to be 17. Mm -hmm. And her oldest son, Jeremiah, and my grandson, Desmond, are about the same age. De Jeremiah is about four months older than Desmond. But Desmond is in my life. I only have that one grandson. She mm -hmm. has three boys and one girl. Mm -hmm. And she will not allow them to be in touch with me. And Do, are they in touch with their cousins? No. So she there's no contact between right, the, the family? Right. The only thing she contacts is one of my older sisters. And um, she'll go around them, go to their barbecues, but she will not have nothing to do with me and my son. So we are, we still operate as a family, me, my son, his wife, and their son. And that's my nucleus. That's my family.
Well, that's an interesting story. So I want to take a a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the work you're doing now and the evolution of Sharon and how that continues. So stay with us. What's up, guys? Sergio Gregorio, a.k.a. Serge here, and I have an amazing tip for you. Do you have a limited budget but want to start a podcast? Well, then Anchor is for you. The creation tools on this app will let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or, if you prefer, from your computer. Anchor will also distribute your podcast to many platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. With Anchor, you can make money from your podcast and you don't have to have a certain number of listeners before you do. Yep, you got it. There is no threshold to meet for number of listeners. Anchor gives you everything you need to start a podcast and it's all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, so we were talking uh, about your your life story, Sharon, and how you are evolving. I want to know a little bit about how that has informed the work that you do today. Because today you work with, what, younger people, older All people, everyone? people, yeah, primarily I do. And how my past informs my future is that because there was the services that I needed at the time, like especially around the trauma, and we think about trauma, you know, trauma being those one-time incidents or lifetime incidents, they might happen perpetually. But what that does is it affects your brain in different ways, you know, and for me, how it affected my brain, I didn't really, like I said, I would intentionally seek people out who was gonna harm me, and I do put myself in high-risk situations because I felt safe there because I came home from the, from the nursery in those type of environments. And because in my problem was that there wasn't a lot of um, services for people with trauma, like trauma resolution, um, getting to the nature of the root of what caused the trauma and then working yourself out of it, or sensory tools, uh, somebody helping you with your sensory diet. Like, what smells do I like? What smells don't I like? What textures do I want on my body? Which ones I don't? All the things that's connected to sensory. I didn't have those things, so I had to create them. And that's how I evolved to where I'm at now. Once I went to school and got my master's degree, part of my training was looking at trauma and how trauma affects the brain. And I was introduced to a guy, um, not him personally, but his work, Dr. DeBellis. And Dr. DeBellis does a lot of brain imagery stuff. And he was able to look at two uh, children's brains, one who had been traumatized, the other one who had not been traumatized, and see that something physiological happens to the brain. I was very interested in that, and I started to study trauma from a neurological standpoint. Like, if this happened to my brain, and the brain is not designed to remember pain, then maybe I can undo some of this stuff with some of the items that I could create. So I started getting therapy, you know, things like that. How are we supposed to think about trauma? Is it uh, one bad incident? Is it cumulative? Is it many different incidents? How are you defining trauma? Right. And trauma, you just described it. And you Are you a doctor, Sergio? <laughs> no. Um, trauma can be a one-time incident. It can happen over a lifetime. And you could look at it like this. If someone has trauma and they don't know they have it and they're in a car accident, a one car accident, just a fender bender, somebody Mm -hmm. bumped the back of the car, one of the persons in the car might get up and go to work the next day and the other one can't get out of bed because it triggers something that they don't Mm -hmm. even know what it is. Or trauma can happen over a lifetime or could have, like in my case, Mm -hmm. I was traumatized early on in my life and I reenacted the trauma so that I can get the responses that felt more natural and comfortable to me. Trauma can be like a, somebody could be raped and that could be very traumatic and then somebody else could be raped and they go to therapy a couple times and get them a little sensory ball and they're over it. You know what I'm saying? So trauma affects people differently. It, 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 but it is a one time over a lifetime of uh, two times. It's the reenactment and, and this is what I want. This is the take home for the audience. 
something traumatic it's not the incident the traumatic incident it's your response to it mm. it's your response to it and that's why one person can get up and go to work the next day and the other one can't get out of bed because their response is different and then as it relates to the longevity of trauma how long something is traumatizing to you there is no gauge there's no calendar there's no measuring stick it's up to the individual on how long something can be reenacted in their life in my time it was from the time I could remember until I was, you know, 29 years old. You know, that's how long my trauma lasts. And yes, I still have incidents of trauma and I'm re-traumatized by smells and things like that. Like my uncle that used to molest me, he used to suck on this hard butterscotch all the time. So I didn't want nothing that smelled like butterscotch around me or vanilla at all until I resolved that issue. Yes, he sucked on butterscotch, but the butterscotch is not your problem, mm. you know? Butterscotch is good, and I eat butterscotch now because I resolved the issue attached to the thing that I remembered, and that's what I mean by the sensory. When you smell something, or even when a woman or someone who's been assaulted is being interviewed about the perpetrator, they may ask, do you remember any smells? Do you, did you see anything? You see, they're trying to get you to have your sensory be stimulated because mm. that is the memory. That's what's attached to the amygdala. When you think about that fight, flight, or freeze, and then the cortex, when you think about that thing that's be like, wait a minute, is this dangerous or not? You know, or I mean the hippocampus, that, that is it's dangerous or not? And then the cortex, put it in some perspective like, yeah, the guy that molested you sucked on butterscotch. But you know what? Butterscotch is good. You, you're you good. Go ahead and have you a couple of now, them. Now, can we flesh that out a little bit? The Because the, I remember when Christine Blasey Ford, uh, she was the woman who testified against now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. And she talked about being assaulted sexually assaulted at a party when she was a teenager and she uh, talked about the hippocampus and as i understand it that is the part of the brain that files memories right and it helps you to flush out that memory because the hippocampus is really there to protect you because remember the amygdala is your fight flight or freeze that's that part of you um somebody something you 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 park and there's a dark alley and you got to walk down there to your gate and your your amygdala gonna be like now it's dark down there Mm. and there may be danger down there and then your hippocampus kicks in and be like you know what as you start walking all of the porch lights gonna come on because everybody got the sensory lights girl you gonna be good Mm. it helps to help you work that thing out and then the cortex is like you know what the last time this happened, didn't you come out all right? Mm. Or it'll tell you the last time this happened, you remember, don't you go down that alley? Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's, so it, it, your brain is really set up to help you figure things out, but there's different parts of it, like the Brokus area. The Brokus area is responsible for language. So when you get people and they're really traumatized, and you're like, well, well, what happened? They're like, they lose their language. And we can even see it on, um, on MRI images that the brokus area shuts down. You see, so all of this is just your body, your brain body self, if that makes sense, trying to help you work this out so that you can be okay. So once I was able to work it out and be like, okay, wait a minute, is this butterscotch really a terrible thing and I'll die or be molested if I eat some? You know what I'm saying? My brain was like, the last time did you did something happen to you? I was like, no. Then the cortex was like, girl, go on, eat you a cup of pieces. <laughs> right. <laughs> So tell me about the, the, the work you do with regard to trauma today. I think most of us have a, and we now, you know, have talked about what trauma is. Um, but we think about um, kind of sort of what we see on the talk shows. You know, people had, you know, experienced a really bad incident. Mm-hmm. Or several years ago, we were having multiple plane crashes. And, you know, there are people who flood the scene of the incident and they talk to the people who have just lost loved ones. How do you come across the people you help and what is it that you do to help them? Yeah, it's really about healing in public. It goes back to there was a problem. I didn't have the trauma therapy or trauma um, resolution center or sensory items like the jury, the art, the pocket spa, the things that I created as a result of the problem. Um, I didn't have those things, so I had to create them. Once I was able to create them, then I created a platform for myself as a trauma expert to go out and share it with the world. So I started getting booked, like rather I was training police officers or rather I was training 
psychiatric nurses, case managers, doctors before they go live on the floor. When they're in residency, I started to go all over the world training people and sharing my life story with them and then sharing the products that I used for self-healing. Um, when I wrote Letter to Naya, I was trying to write a letter to her before we found her to let her know why she ended up in foster care. We had not found her at the time. And I kept trying to write these letters, which is why the movie is called Letter to Naya, Letters to Naya, because it, it turned into something else and then it helped me because I can't be everywhere at, at the same time. So if you Google Sharon Wise, you'll see different speaking engagements, things I've done around the world, awards I've won, you know, for my work as well as for my art and my sensory tools. So as it relates to my past informing my present and my future, it was all born out of me needing something for myself and then in, in exchange, I share it with the world. Um, when I used the puppets, the marionettes, I realized that there was children with trauma who just had not developed the language because if trauma happens before you develop language, sometimes you have to try to figure out how to communicate what's happening to you. So in my case, it was the art, and I would draw And you don't sheet. mean ability to talk. You mean literally ability to communicate what they experience Ability to, you. to talk like a baby can't oh, talk. Oh, okay. A baby cries okay. because it can't say, can you warm this bottle up for me, or I'm wet. So we have to learn their, we call it love language or yeah. different things we call it now. You know, everything has a name. Um, and so babies they can't talk so they have to develop a language so just imagine being two years old you're being abused and you have a binky as your self-healing tool and it falls under the couch and you can't get it because you're two you can't move that couch and the people who's supposed to be watching you they're drunk and high over on the other couch or laid out on the floor so as a two-year-old you're trying to work out how do i get to my tool i need but you don't know that's what it is for you oh, there's a fork on the table and there's an outlet. You're two, you're just looking for stuff. You take the fork and you stick it in the outlet and it gives you a jolt, a shock. Now you're addicted to that. And now you don't have your binky every time you need mommy and them fighting again. I need to calm myself. I can't put my binky in my mouth. Let me go get that fork or anything else I can stick in this outlet to get mm. this shock. Mm -hmm. So that's how people become addicted. They're trying to work it out, and that's what I mean by is drug abuse or self-harm, is it self-destructive, or is it the best attempt at self-healing that they can find irregardless of the consequences? So I started to develop these tools that I needed that I share with the world, and that's what's been informing my work today. The puppets get kids talking. When and what I, does that look like? You 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 show up to I don't know I don't know I'm a usually room. called. I'm you're usually called. called because people know my work. And okay. They know that I do a lot of creative things. Okay. I call it healing trauma through the use of the art, performing and visual arts, and the sensory tools are a part of that packaging and stuff. So are you in a room with a child? Are you behind a screen and it's just a puppet? Usually, are you? Yeah, usually it's a room like this yeah. or a hospital room, emergency room or something like that or Child Protective Services or CFSA or something like that. And the child is in there and then I'll come in already pre, uh, I, I've already been briefed on what is happening here. They're trying to find out who burnt this child, who hurt this child. And so I already know what puppet to bring, rather to have a Band-Aid on the puppet head or around mm. its arm. I already know this in advance. So when I come in, the child isn't attracted to me. I don't care what I have on. They're looking at that puppet. Wow. And the puppet comes in, and I act like it's limping or something like that. Automatically, what's wrong with your puppet? Oh, somebody heard him. Like my mommy, it takes me five minutes. I'm like, first of all, I bill about an hour. <laughs> and I didn't, y'all have been trying to get this baby to tell y'all for three days. And I walk in, I learned in 10 minutes, you know, who I submit my invoice to, you know. No, I would do it for free. Right. I would do it for free. I just want to say that I just was adding a little humor in this yeah. very heavy conversation that we're having. But it's so amazing and spiritual to see those children will tell because they don't want no one hurting that puppet. They don't mind them hurting them. They three, four years old, black eye, broken, you know. But you better not hit that puppet. 
And that's why I started, I use what I got to get what I want. I know we did the bump to that in the 70s, but it is the phenomena is, has not changed. And when you lean into your gifts, then your gifts will make room for you, you know, and you'll start, I started to grow and scale my different products and the way I delivered my messages. I remember the last time, right, it was pre-pandemic, I just came back from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and um, I was in a, they told me, look, we need these, um, all the psychiatrists have to get two hours of training of some kind of trauma training. We want to bring you in because we love you. You're funny and you, you're just sharing wise and you're just amazing. We want you to talk to these doctors. I said, okay, you know, I flew in, we went out to dinner. The next day I walk into a room, there must was, I don't know, maybe $150, $200 doctors and they're all sitting in there they face all balled up with their their arms folded and everything. I can't learn anything from a patient, you know. And all, she's an ex patient, you know. what I'm saying now now um, the crazy people got the keys. And when I heard them say that, I said the crazy people already got the keys, and they sitting here. You, Doctor Jones, all y'all, right. you right. know what I'm saying, you know. And I went on to share my story. I showed the film. That's usually how I present. I show. I do a very brief introduction. Believe it or not, I can do brief introductions, and then I show my film and then I go into my PowerPoint and when I finished showing that film and doing my PowerPoint some of them was you know kind of they had went from this to this because they probably had had a couple of tears falling out their eyes and when I left that place I got 20 or 25 little notes on napkins because they served them a really lavish lunch you know, and they could eat while I was talking and everything. And they took the napkins and wrote na nap different little notes and stuff and handed it to me. One of them had a $50 bill in it wow. saying, take yourself to lunch. Thank you for sharing my story. And it was one of them that I would never forget. And it said, I never in a million years thought that I would see myself on stage looking like a black woman with an afro. But my father would feed me and my brother raw bacon mixed in dog food and put us in the basement mm. where it was wet and damp. And I told myself, no one, when I got older, no one would ever abuse me or hit me again. And I became a lawyer and then a prosecutor and then I went to medical school. And I said to myself, it, you'd be surprised who have these different traumatic experiences who go into different industries as a means of healing. So in, with that being said, I am one of the most blessed people in the world because I get to heal in public and I get to share my scars and all of my burn marks and my art and my puppets and I get to be Sharon and I get to have a big ass afro and wear funny clothes sometimes and, and mismatched socks and no one ever asks me what the hell you got on because mm. they all know that this is a part of my freedom story. This is a part of my swans dance and these opportunities that I have. And that's my message to the audience. Never allow what has happened to you to happen. I mean, don't never allow what happened to you to be your pathway to destruction. Let it be your what happened for me to be your pathway to success. Mm. Is there any, uh, were there any particular people you dealt with that really change the way you think about trauma and how you address it or deal with it? Um, there are several, and I could name them because they're all dead and gone now. Um, but this one woman, I remember right after I had surrendered my children, I was getting ready to hitchhike to, D to uh, Detroit with two other girls like me living on the streets. Her name was Miss Margie. And Miss Margie was like the... Um, if you ever wanted to see someone who was addicted to drugs, who had really messed their physical body up, this is the woman you want to go and put the picture next to. What does a person who, who's used drugs all their life look like, who's destroyed their body? If it was in the dictionary, it would probably have a picture of Miss Margie. Miss Margie had shot dope, dope all in her neck, all in her breast, under her arms. Her, her feet and arms and hands was like Popeyes. They were swollen from all the misses and all these track marks and mm -hmm. everything all over her body. But she, in all of that, had a daughter who was a hairdresser. And even though Miss Margie might be all high and non and tracks all over her body, her hair stayed done. 
And that's what attracted me to her. She had a, this little pixie thing going on like Tony Braxton used to wear. And that thing stayed laid and fried yeah. to the side, baby. <laughs> and I would always, Miss Mario, I love your hair. Yeah, baby, but let me tell you something. That guy you, you running around with, uh-uh. He going to try for you out this city. Don't be around him. And then she going on down the street with her life savings and her shopping cart. Whenever I would see her, she would give me these little nuggets, these little take-homes. Them girl, I'm telling you, with a food bank at on Wednesday. If you need a bath and some sanitary product, you go down to that church down there. Now tell the other girl, now I got to go. Got $2, and I give her $2. It was, she was one of the most influential people in my life. And this woman was a homeless drug addict who lived out of her shopping cart who ate cat food, hmm. who kept her hair done. Because that's all her daughter could do for her because she wouldn't let her – she wouldn't, didn't want to come live with her, didn't, wouldn't help any, let her help her in any other way. And Miss um, Kaplan, my fourth grade teacher, um, who when I first got my cycle, I didn't know what it was because no one ever told me that you're going to grow breasts, Sharon, you're going to have a cycle one day. So when I started growing breasts, I tried to cut them off and I totally maimed myself because I didn't know what they were. I just thought, what is this coming out of my chest? Mm -hmm. You know, and then when I got my cycle, what, what is happening? I, I went to the emergency room <laughs> because I didn't know what it was. And I remember the lady in the emergency room saying, well, when the last time you had your cycle? And I said, what's that? She said, oh, Lord, this girl is starting her cycle. Put this on. And she gave me this, this pad. And I, I know I'm being a little graphic, but I just want the listeners to know you got a niece or a neighbor. You got somebody that's going through what I went through. And I want you to be as informed as I can, even though it might be a little disturbing. So we might need to do a caption. This podcast here is for only mature adults or something. But I remember her giving this to me and telling me to put it on. She never told me to take it off. So when I went to school the next day, after the whole weekend of having the same one on all weekend, mm. there was flies following me. Mm. And Miss Kaplan, when I walked in the room, she got, oh. <laughs> she was like, what in the hell you been doing, you know? And I told her about my incident, what happened that Friday. And that she said, so the, la the lady told you, did you take it? I said, no, she didn't tell me. Girl. And she took me in the bathroom. And this was a teacher? My teacher, Miss Kaplan, she was a Jewish woman. Yeah. And whenever the Hanukkah would happen, she would bring in pastry and things like that. And I loved Miss Kaplan. She was my cheerleader um, um, coach as well. And she took me in the bathroom and gave me a lesson I'll never forget. And I remember pulling my blouse down. I said, well, what can you do about these? What have you done to yourself? <laughs> you know? Wow. She said, girl... I will bring you some stuff in tomorrow. She brought me some little training bras and See, stuff. See, yeah, and I don't think a teacher could do that today, you know. Um, but she was able to do that for she, you. That lady, at, I, and I remember maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I tried to track her down yeah. from that elementary school I went to, Miss Kaplan, to just tell her thank you. Because now when I'm mentoring girls and I see that little dirty bra strap, that's my indicator to go to work. Because in my mind, I'd be like, oh, Lord, there go Angel, child. Lord, why you put Angel in my class? Because that was my nickname, Angel. I was like, Lord, then you smell that smell and you know, Lord, mm. I'm going to have to do a couple of groups on this or that. And it helps, once again, as answering your question, in guiding my work, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so um, my workshops, a lot of what I do, once I see this or that, I already know how to tell it a workshop. Or if I have some intel and somebody tell me, now, look, this is a tough group. Give me all the tough groups. Give me all the bad kids. You can put all of them in my session and put all the sweet ones over there because I, I want the ones that's going to help me continue to identify myself when I didn't have an opportunity to have my daddy take me to no dance. I now can work with girls who feel the same way and let them know you don't need no daddy. I got some um, shriners that'll take you to your daddy dance, father and daughter dance, so that you're not laying under some little boy that only wants you for five minutes. Mm. What would you, um, not that you're going anywhere anytime soon, but what would you want your legacy to be? When people remember um, Sharon Wise, what would you want them to think of when they think well, of you? Well, I'm building a legacy now, like with my products and service and the things that I do, you know, and having a grandson that I can 
build some humanity inside of. So when I go out feeding the homeless or cleaning the streets and things like that, you know, I always take him with me because I want him to know how blessed he is. You know what I'm saying? And um, as far as my legacy is concerned, I think about what, what, what Martin Luther King said, and I mentioned it earlier. Not everybody could be famous, not everybody could be rich, but everybody could serve. So I want people to remember me for that or to think of me in that regard, that I'm a servant, that nothing that I'm doing has anything to do with me. And that's why I have levels and pockets of success and things like that, because it's not about me. Nothing you know, that I'm doing has anything to do with me. It's about my service work. I want to always serve. I want to always use my life and the things that I've gone through to help somebody else to be catapulted to a higher level of consciousness so that they don't have to go through it, or if they do it, the fall won't be so hard. You can be like, no, I ain't going to jail. I'm going to call Sharon and ask her what they serve. And, you know, you can mm-hmm. do that now, you know, so. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, maybe they want to, I don't know, follow you on Instagram. How do they find you? Well, on Instagram, I'm Wise Work It. And on Facebook, I'm Sharon Wise. And, um... My email address is the number one, wiseworks, with a Z, at gmail.com. That's the number one, W-I-S-E-W-O-R-K-Z, as in zebra, at gmail.com. And I don't mind giving my number out. It's 202-867-0956. You can give me a call. This isn't my private number, but it is a number that I do answer all the time because I always want to be a service and if I can't help you I can definitely put you in touch with some resources Sharon I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to me uh, during this podcast and I'm sure our listeners are going to be empowered and they're going to really learn um, and grow from hearing your story the pleasure is all mine